0: Hello and welcome to Alenovie Luxembourg's podcast. My name is Victoria wurstmann i I'm a senior associate in our Luxembourg corporate department. And today we will be talking about beneficial units. For this, I've invited Justine Yorsen, junior associate in our corporate team, who has decided to do an empirical study of the current Luxembourg market practice with respect to beneficial units, together with a university colleague, Thomas Biermayer, for her bachelor thesis. With the results of their study, Justine and Thomas participated in and won the 2020 Prix de l'Association Luxembourgeoise de Juristes Bancaires, the LGB. Their study has been published in the July edition of the Bulletin, Droit et Banque of the LGB. And so, first of all, congratulations, Justine and Thomas, of course. And thanks, Justine, for joining us here today. Hi, Victoria. Thanks a lot for having me. Justine, to start... Can you tell us why you decided to participate in this competition and why you decided to do the empirical study on beneficial units? Sure. Well, I must admit, our participation
1: in the PRIA LGB was very spontaneous and quite last minute due to both Thomas and I work and busyness at work. But I think the main reason why we participated in this prize was because we felt that our research methodology was somehow apart from the methodology you normally see in legal research or even in doctrine. And we were really curious to see how Luxembourg academic world, but also practical world, would react to our methodology. After we started this project about two years ago, we because we thought that beneficiary units were a very interesting and flexible instrument, and also very specific to Luxembourg corporate law. And we thought that it could potentially set aside Luxembourg because of the advantage the instrument could bring, and set aside Luxembourg in terms of structuring of the deals, etc. But at that time, we also realized that it was not so clear what you could actually do with this flexibility, and it was not so clear for practitioners nor for market actors. So we thought to do an empirical research to kind of fill the gap, and if possible, and we really think that our article will do that, bring a bit more certainty and clarity about the use of the instrument
0: and its features. That's super interesting. Thank you, Justine. So you really did some actual academic work, and that's quite impressive. So tell us about the study. I heard that you and Thomas had to work through a crazy amount of data. You say you started two years ago. That's such a long time. So how long did the project actually take to complete from start to finish? And did you have any help, the both of you?
1: So it's right. It's been going on for some time now. And we did analyze a huge amount of documents. So for this article, we went through... 1,968 documents. And we only focus at the moment on the time spent going from 2016 to the first half of 2020. But in doing so, we also found some documents from 2014, 2015, and also 2013. But fortunately, in the end, only and. 89 documents were relevant for the purpose of our analysis because we realized that in most of the 1,968 documents, beneficiary units were only mentioned in the corporate purpose of the article of association of the company who had issued beneficiary units. So we did not take these into account for the purpose of our statistic in the article because otherwise it would have been highly misleading. And yeah, we were really grateful and lucky to have help from several of our research assistants. And we are always looking also for new research assistants and a new persons. So if anybody listening should be interested, please do not hesitate to drop me a message.
0: Okay, I see, Justine. So, and you're spoilering this a little bit. You guys are actually planning to continue your project and you'll tell us more about that later on. But let's get back to the topic. I mean... The amount of documents you went through was super impressive. And I understand that you did some filtering beforehand to actually filter out the documents that were relevant for you. And I understand that at the end, while well, you still had quite a big number of documents to go through. I do remember from my own experience, from my studies, that bachelor thesis and master thesis and, and similar academic projects can be super fascinating. But I, honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to embrace such a big project right after my studies while I was starting my first job. So congrats to you guys for that. Let's dive into the subject now. Beneficiary units. Super fancy word, but I'm not sure all our listeners will know exactly what they are. Can you briefly explain and also tell us what they're usually used for?
1: Absolutely. Beneficiary units are corporate finance instruments issuable by companies that do not represent the share capital of the company issuing them. Typically, people compare them to shares but it's not as straightforward because the qualification as debt or equity will very much vary on the actual content on the instrument. And it could sometimes tend more towards debt or towards equity, depending on what the issuer has decided to include as to the content of beneficial units. Now, looking at the actual use, I guess it also depends. Typical lawyer answer, right? But Joke aside, it depends on the content as well as on what intention the issuer had when issuing beneficiary units. For instance, we found through our research that they can have a pure investment function whereby beneficiary unit holders have the right to a preferred dividend. But we also identified cases where beneficiary units add more of a governance function allowing long-standing shareholders or managers to have control over the company or more control over the company than new
0: shareholders I see so that's interesting beneficiary units are really super flexible instruments that can be used To give various advantages to their subscribers and to their holders, right? So, tell us about your study. What did you focus on particularly, and what were you trying to determine with respect to BUs actually? The main
1: objective of our study was, as we said, to identify the market practice. And so, in other words, what is deemed acceptable in terms of beneficiary units and the rights and the features they contain. So, to determine what was deem acceptable, we looked at several points that we identified as being the main feature of the instrument. And for instance, we started by looking at whether information about beneficiary units should be included or were normally included or not in the article of the company issuing them. Also, we looked at what kind of companies would be issuing the instrument the most, what kind of corporate body would normally be empowered to go through with an assurance. We also looked at the contribution required against beneficiary units. And finally, at the content of the instruments, so voting rights, economic rights, the quorum and majority required, and the inclusion of beneficiary units or not within these quorum and majorities. And last but not least, what was normally applied in terms of transferability and transfer restrictions.
0: Right, I see. And just from the top of your head, what was your most impressive and major finding? Did you see that beneficiary units had mostly used to give additional economic rights or additional voting rights? Was there a clear indication following your study to that? Yeah, it's a very good and very interesting question, Victoria. I think it's both. So
1: it's yes to both. So it was the two main instances that we could identify. So either you could see that beneficiary units had economic rights, and that was it. And you could see that it was mainly used to interest shareholders or maybe even employees in the company. And in other cases, it was purely about governance and and governing governance function. So in this last example, you would have beneficiary unit holders with very intense voting rights and voting powers where they could, for instance, have the total control over the election of the board of members of the company. And this was very interesting and is also very far-reaching in terms of governance.
0: Indeed, so you did really find a quite diverse market practice, I understand. But tell us more about that. So is it market practice to include the total number of beneficial units issued and very detailed information with respect to the BU's in the articles of the Luxembourg Company or not so much? Yes, definitely. It appears to be the case. And it appears to be a market practice to
1: include at least the number of beneficiary units being issued in the Article of Association of the company issuing them. And it was the case in, I believe, 133 cases out of the 289 documents we analyzed. But in terms of specific information, it. Varied. So we still found some quite interesting information because otherwise we would not have been able to complete this research. But we are under the impression that there has been some issuance of beneficiary units under private seal and that there are out there some beneficiary units being issued with terms and conditions that are determined in documents very similar to a shareholder's agreement. So I think this is also something that is really important to keep in mind is that it is also possible to hide the real terms of condition of beneficiary units. So our research has, we try to be as as specific and as as on point in our research, but also we cannot exclude that there are some conditions and, and terms that we did not See and could not analyze due to these privacy issues.
0: Right. And I think that's an important point that, of course, there is no obligation to necessarily have beneficial units in the articles. And we do indeed often see also in our common practice that these terms are often included in shareholders agreements, which are, of course, not going to be published. So your research was limited in that respect to a certain extent. But with respect to those beneficial unit issuances that you saw and that were reflected in articles, what type of contributions could you identify at the end of the day? Is it market practice to always require financial? financial contributions against the issuance of BUs, or did you see anything else?
1: Yes, so that's right. There is market practice to require a financial contribution, or at least some kind of contribution against the issuance of beneficiary units. And in terms of type of contribution, we identified all three possible types. So cash, in-kind contribution,
0: as well as sweat contributions. Okay, okay. So let's take a small step back here. Sweat contributions really sounds like someone having to work night and day in a steel factory, contributing his actual tears and sweat. That's certainly not it. Can you explain to our listeners what a sweat contribution really is? I mean, I guess it could
1: be, right? Because sweat contribution is defined doctrinally as know-how, goodwill, or other help provided by the funders or another key person to the company. So I guess it could be a worker working a sweat and tears in the company that he has worked so well that you give him some kind of instrument to reward this work. So sweat contributions can be everything that is difficult to evaluate from a financial perspective. So In our research, we identified, for instance, one case where a sweat contribution consisted of making available a network to the company, and this was rewarded by the issuance of one beneficiary unit. In another case, it was the effort and expertise of the funders that he had made available to the company that had been rewarded by a beneficiary unit. In the last case, the sweat contribution consisted in the holding of shares in a company for a certain period of time. And so in this case, as I said earlier, it is market practice to require a contribution, if not a financial one, at least some kind of contribution against the issuance of beneficiary units. But in this particular case, it really depends on whether you think that this holding of shares in a company for a certain period of time is indeed a sweat contribution and is indeed a contribution that is satisfactory and is enough to issue beneficiary units. And if you consider that, yes, it is enough, then of course it is an issuance of beneficiary units against consideration, against a contribution. But if you don't consider it as being enough, then this particular case could potentially be qualified as being a free issuance of beneficiary units.
0: Right. And I guess that's the beauty of beneficiary units, right? Because you can pretty much issue them in any way you want. And we do see weird examples like the one you described where you're not even sure if that was an actual real contribution and valuable contribution or if it was more some kind of contribution to justify an issuance that was actually free. But now let's move on to the rights of the beneficiary units. What trend could you identify when looking at voting rights attached to such views? Could you identify instances where the influence of beneficiary unit holders over the governance of the company seemed to surpass the one of the actual shareholders?
1: Yeah, the answer to both questions is yes. So the main trend we identified when looking at voting rights attached to beneficiary units was to attach only one voting right per instrument. And this was the case in 48 of the documents we analyzed. But also a very interesting trend is the one to limit the voting rights of beneficiary unit holders to certain matters. And such matters could be, for instance, as I mentioned previously, the appointment of the members of the board of the company, or, and this was also often the case, to the modification of the terms of beneficiary units. So if the terms of the beneficiary units would be modified, then the Beneficiary Unit holders could have a right to say yes or no, but if it was about any other topics, they could not have any voting right at all, and sometimes not even the right to assist to the general meeting. However, we did find some scenarios where the influence of Bayu holders over the governance of the company could surpass the one of shareholders themselves. And the mechanisms used to achieve this goal were For instance, a case where Bayou owners had what we decided to call total voting rights, whereby beneficiary units holders would always have a certain percentage over specified matters at shareholder meetings, regardless of how many shares had been issued. And in another case, very interesting one, there was even a clause where beneficiary units holders had a so-called voting multiplier, allowing them to multiply the voting rights of one shareholders until the majority required to take the decision which was reached, regardless of the number of votes against such resolution. So essentially, it allowed you to endorse a shareholder despite what the others were thinking. And this was the most extensive voting right that that we found and the most interesting instance where, indeed, beneficiary units' holders would have more power over the governance of the company than the shareholders'.
0: Right. So beneficial units can really be used uh, first for political rights and to give quite strong political power to their holders, right? And what we also see in our practice, so in the practice that I see on a daily basis, is that beneficial units are indeed often used as an add-on to the more classical shares. So let's talk about the transferability of shares. We know that transferability of shares in joint venture context is often restricted. Did you also find that true for beneficiary units? And what type of restrictions did you identify in your study?
1: Yeah, it is also true for beneficiary units, definitely. And it even appears to be market practice to have stricter transfer restrictions for beneficiary units that you would normally see for shares or even be allowed to have for shares. So for instance, we found 53 cases where beneficiary unit holders would need to secure the prior approval of shareholders to transfer the instrument. And in 28 cases, without such approval, beneficiary unit holders would effectively be locked into the company. And we also saw lockup periods of 10 to 15 years applying to beneficiary units. And even cases where non-permitted transfer would result in the cancellation or suspension of the rights linked to beneficiary units.
0: Right, I see. And I guess with all the extra rights that you described that you saw that beneficiary units had, that makes perfect sense to really restrict that transferability. So thanks a lot, Justine. This was super interesting. I think we could go on for ages, to be honest, about this topic. And your study has covered so many interesting aspects of it. But tell us, are you planning to further pursue this? Because I think there's much more room to study, right?
1: Absolutely. We are planning to pursue this further. And we are still ongoing on research as we speak with some research assistants helping us to analyze the data. Thanks to our publication, we have also received a lot of suggestions of field to look into while conducted analyzes. So it is definitely something that is planned, that is ongoing, and we are really looking further to see where this research takes us. And we really hope it helps market practitioners uh, and actors to know a bit more about beneficiary units and hopefully to use
0: them more as well. Great. That sounds like you have exciting times ahead. Thanks a lot for sharing your insights on beneficial units and the Luxembourg market practice. And we will make sure to share the link to the bulletin of the ILGB in the details section of the podcast in case any of our listeners want to dive into this further. Thanks a lot for having me, Victoria.